Hey, what's up Seekers? Welcome back. So we are in the middle of a series on pantheism, right now focusing on Jewish pantheologies. We started with a video looking at the seeds of Jewish pantheism in the Bible, in Philo, and then in some rabbinic literature, followed by a video on pantheistic thought amongst the Kabbalists. We spoke briefly about some key verses in the Zohar, some fantastic quotes from De Leon and Cardevero, and in this class we're going to continue to expand upon the thought of Moses Cardevero, the Ramak, the great encyclopedic mind of Jewish mysticism, the author of the magnificent Pardes Ramonim. We hope to unpack the thought of Cardevero, along with his successor, Rabbi Isaac Luria, the Arizal, and hope to explain their central ideas of Seder Hishtalshlot and Simtsum as they pertain to this question of pantheism. One may find that a lot of the ways that these Kabbalistic ideas are spoken about are highly arcane, obscure, and obtuse. And that is for good reason, because the original language and the original systems that these ideas were developed in are highly arcane, obscure, and obtuse. But I do believe that these ideas have significance, have meaning for us moderns here in the 21st century, and while it does help to have a full grasp on these Kabbalistic systems from the Middle Ages, I do believe that we can perhaps, with some finesse, demystify these ideas and show how they can be applicable to a modern person beyond all of the obscure language and packaging that these ideas originally come with. I, for one, for many years were taught these ideas in their original form in highly obscure and abstract language, and have found some ways to make these ideas meaningful and applicable in my own life, thanks to the ability to situate these ideas in a comparative framework, which allows us to strip away some of the particularistic language and get to the perhaps universally applicable ideas at their core. It's my hope that this presentation in a little way helps do the same for you with some of these most central and grand ideas of the Kabbalists. Alright, with that introduction, let us continue from where we laid off last time. We laid the groundwork to this video with some exquisite quotes from Cardevero in last video. Let us now work to try and unpack his Kabbalistic, pantheistic, or panentheistic theory a little. This unpacking of his theory, by the way, is entirely indebted to the great German scholar of Jewish mysticism, Gershon Shalom. I highly recommend, by the way, checking out his chapter on Kabbalah and pantheism to see him working through these ideas in his own language and his conclusions for yourself. It'll be very worth it if you can tolerate his Germanic writing style. Okay, so as we started to allude to and promised to explain in the last episode, central to the question of pantheism and Kabbalah, of the correct way to understand the relationship between God and world, is the Kabbalistic theory of emanation, the great chain of being, the Seder Hishtalshlut of the Kabbalists an idea, or rather a schema of reality, that would be familiar to anyone who studied Neoplatonism or the Muslim and Christian mystical traditions which were influenced by her. The schema, according to the Kabbalists, runs something like this. All that fundamentally exists was and is the One. The One beyond number, the One without limit, the Holy Blessed One, the sacred, salient, the real, the One which must exist, the One which cannot not exist the one which is being itself and beyond being, the one which is the ground of being, without which there could be no being, the one from which all else flows. The one, metaphorically at some point, desires to create. Metaphorically, because the one is beyond space, time, and desire. Yet, within the literature of the mystics, we find various anthropomorphizations given to explain and understand this moment that precipitates creation, or emanation from the one. God, the One, was lonely, wanted to see, 
to know itself, to be known, was full and had to overflow, was good and needed an other to do good with, or God just wanted. Why? No questions asked. Whatever the reason given or not given, the mechanism by which the one bifurcates, multiplies, and creates the many, the world, the illusion of separation and otherness, generally runs something like this. The one flows, shines, emanates from itself, its light, life, energy, which, over a course of descent, gradations, and degradations, gradually becomes more and more coarse, fragmented, and thickened, progressively or degressively embodied, invested, and enclosed in the metaphor of matter in the signifier of material. According to the cosmologists, I mean the, the Kabbalists, in the very first moments, something inscrutable shatters into barely perceivable or even conceivable particles of existence, which begin to metastasize and multiply, gain mass and thicken, bending the amorphous boundaries of reality, defining space, time, motion, and light in the process. Light then thickens into vessels, just as protons into neutrons, neutrons into electrons, into crystalline double helixes, molecules and waves, chrysalides and butterflies, into akudim, nikudim, and brudim, oisius and tevis, Arius and Kalim, Spirit, Partsufim, and Olamot, Sunshine, and Rainbows. All said and done, in the top end of the metaphysical funnel goes the one, and out the other end of the spectrum pops out the universe, reality as we know it. The problem, though, with this otherwise simple-to-understand ontology is the question that plagues all metaphysics of mysticism. God and world, the one and the many, are fundamentally and categorically incommiserate, incomparable, and the gap between them utterly unbridgeable. Because their difference is not one of degree, but of kind, and of kinds that share no class, genus, or set. This is what we might call the strong emergence problem for the emanationists. And while many will be sufficiently distracted by the bells and whistles of the Kabbalists' great chain of being, and many will get lost among the upper worlds of Seder Rishtalshalot, Somewhere between the Siluk and Parsa, between Atsilas and Asiya, Zah and Nukfa, the more persistent observer will not let this metaphysical sleight of hand slide by. If we begin with God and end with world, at some point along the chain there must lie the impossible quantum qualitative leap over the infinite gap dividing them. In the language of the Kabbalists, at one point there must be Ma'atzil, the emanator, and at the next moment, Ne'atzal emanated, and the step between them, as teeny as you'd like to portray it, to hide it, must happen, if you believe that both God and the world exist, but cannot happen without first surrendering the fundamental, inalienable, very Kabbalistic definitions of those two words. This, in short, is the problem of Seder Hishtalshlut, the problem for which it was created and the problem which it cannot but must solve. Having said that, the Kabbalist's attempt to answer this indissoluble question takes the shape of bringing a metaphoric microscope to the metaphoric middleist link in the chain of being, to the point where the divine touches the mundane, where the sacred meets the profane, where God ends and the world begins. Where exactly this X point is becomes a matter of vociferous debate amongst the Kabbalists, and even identifying it is only half the solution. We then have to figure out how the transition happens, how the emanator passes the torch over the unbridgeable chasm to the emanated. 
And just in case you think this metaphysical magnifying is an inane medieval activity which we can thankfully abandon with the advent of modernity, I'd like to suggest that this is very much still a real question, and one that possesses the best minds of modern poets, artists, novelists, philosophers, therapists, and in near form, scientists and mathematicians today. Because this question does not just pertain to the cosmological structure of reality, but also, and equally so, to the human psyche. Where does my true being end? The part of me which loves without reason, has patience and forgives endlessly. That part of me which is innocent and blissful, where and why does that end, and my everyday, selfish, impatient, tired, jealous, and petty self begin? Where does God end, and the void within the self begin? Where does the infinite end, and the finite begin, and how? This question, writ large, projected onto the ceiling of the cosmos, is, I believe, the question of the Kabbalists. Their art is psychology made simultaneously external and internal, so that the self can be examined at a safe distance, with room for perspective, experimentation, collaboration, and corroboration, the science of the soul. This is theology as projected psychology. This is also where the question of the Kabbalist pantheism, by the way, rests. In this crack between God and world, how deep the Kabbalists want to know does the face of divinity go into the mask of materiality, and how far back does the hand of materiality go into the glove of divinity? The pin dropped on the metaphysical map to demarcate the border and boundary between the divine and the worldly usually lands on or just above the sphere of Keter, the hypostasis that is somehow both emanator and emanated and neither of the two. With this introduction in mind, we can go back to Shalom on Cardevero. Cardevero understood full well that the salient question of the whole theory of emanation, as he formulated it, was this transition from Ein Sof to the sphere of Keter, and he devoted a great deal of effort to its solution. By the way, if you're not sure what Keter is, we may not have the time here to explain it, but do check out our introductory video on the Sfirot, where we try and explain briefly what Keter, among the other Sfirot, means. Cordovero set to developing the theory that even the highest aspects of Keter, which he called the Keter of Keter, the Keter of the Keter of Keter, etc., approach the essence of God, the Ein Sof, the one without end, asymptotically, until the human intellect can no longer distinguish between them, between this highest part of Keter and God the Ein Sof. Nevertheless, even the highest, innermost aspect of Keter maintains distinct identity from the Ein Sof, according to Cardevero. So there's still a leap between the Ein Sof in its hidden existence and the crown of Keter, which continually approaches the infinite, but never quite reaches it. Shalom writes that the paradoxicality of this view, reaching but not reaching, testifies to the way Cordovera felt torn between what we would call theism and pantheism. From the divine point of view, God encompasses Keter both by virtue of being its cause and essence, but from the human perspective, all of these stages from Keter onwards constitute a secondary reality existing separately from and merely contingent upon God. Hence, they cannot possibly share any true identity with the essence of the emanator with God, with the Ein Sof. For Cordovero, this dual relationship between the essence of the emanator and the essence of the emanated in Keter, where they both meet and unite and yet remain distinct and separate, must be maintained 
giving us a world that both is and is not God. Because Cardevera, while maintaining the classical picture that we laid out before, namely that through the process of emanation, the divine becomes gradually coarsened and thickened as it descends in and through the kalim, the vessels, the antecedents of matter, and the levoshim, the garments and enclothements of materiality, concealing the divine, Cordovero simultaneously asserts that through and beyond all this, beyond all the infinite enclothings, vesslings, and metaphorings, there is not a single link in the metaphorical chain where the essence of the Ein Sof does not remain present and imminent throughout. At no point can we say God is no longer here. As we saw in last video, even about a rock in the street, one cannot say this is not in some way God. According to Cartevero, even from the perspective of the human, it is possible to contemplatively undress these garments and reveal the ta'aluche ha'etzem, the processions of the divine essence, which enclothes itself in them in the garments. And for Cartevero, the moment of revelation occasioned by this undressing is the supreme good, the summum bonum, to which the mystic aspires to attain throughout their life. However, again, Cardevero, who must consistently maintain the balance on the flip side, adds that the divine substance imminent in the vessels, in the garments, and by extension in materiality, ever-present, is not identical with the substance of the given vessel itself. Using the language of ilava alul cause and effect, to refer to the divine causative and the manifested cause, Cardevero writes, the products of causation, i.e. the effects, as they descend, do not share the same essence as their cause, but rather are diminished from their cause as they descend into the lowest levels of existence, namely our world as we know it. Omnum, Cardevera continues, however, as the effects reascend towards their cause, they are united with it, until they reach the supreme cause of all, where there is no longer any distinction between the cause and their effects, for they adhere to it as far as it is possible, and are truly united with the Ein Sof, where, and get this line, there is no cause and effect, but everything is cause. This beautiful expression, where there is no cause and effect, but everything is cause, is one which rings true as an expression of this metaphysical moment, or state of reality, state of consciousness, for so many mystical traditions, and also carries real psychological application if you remember our discussion of Spinoza's psychology, this may make some more sense to you. Cordovero, however, applies two caveats to this reascent into the first cause, into the bosom of the supreme substance, where all becomes cause. Firstly, at least in Shalom's reading, which should be taken with a very large grain of salt, knowing Shalom's predisposition against finding cases of unio mystica in Judaism, that firstly, this ascent is not achievable by the individual mystic, but only culminatively by all of creation in totality when that final eschatological moment arrives. And secondly, Cordovero writes repeatedly that the effects, the cause creations, are never reabsorbed in totality into the divine, but only that of them which is divine will be reabsorbed. But their levushim, the garments themselves, the substance of their materiality, will have to be shed prior to that reunion taking place. As Shalom phrases it in his great Germanic tongue, what has been forever sundered from the Godhead cannot be redeified. Which leads him to conclude that, quote, the single most definitive statement in Cordovero's treatment of the problem of pantheism is, God is all that exists, but not all that exists is God. 
If that sounds paradoxical to you, that's okay, because in the realms of pan and panentheism, paradox is precisely the currency that we're trading in. I hope that by this point, we've gone beyond simple classifications and labels to a place where we can use these words, these labels, to point to something deeper beyond mere labels, both into the specific theological flavor of each of these moments, schools, thinkers, and traditions, and simultaneously to their commonality and shared metaphysical vision, and maybe even into our own experience. The next great figure in our story is the linchpin, the pivot point of Kabbalah, who single-handedly splits its history into two, Kabbalah before Luria and post-Luriana Kabbalah, Rabbi Isaac Luria, the living lion, the Arizal Hachai. To speak in ridiculously broad strokes here for but a moment, if for Luria's predecessor, Moses Cardevero, the primary conceptual metaphysical apparatus employed to grapple with the question of pantheology is the mechanics of Seder Stalschlot, and her liminal, transitional crowning phases, the secret inner workings of the Sphere of Keter, for Luria, in contrast, the answer to the God-world equation will emerge from the way that he plays with the concept of Tzimtzum. Tzimtzum is the Kabbalistic concept of the divine self-contraction, the act in which God creates space for creation, an idea which had some play before Luria, but under his thinking undergoes tremendous theological innovation and becomes a cornerstone of his metaphysical edifice. The theological ripples and implications of the concept of Tzimtzum for the subsequent history of Jewish mysticism following Luria are colossal and cannot be underestimated, and the ways which will be understood, interpreted, and debated will go on to shape and define the very parameters and possibilities of the question of God's relationship with the world and humanity for centuries. Simply put, if Tzimtzum, if this divine self-contraction is read literally, that God literally withdrew to create an empty space, a void, vacant, vacated arena for creation, absent of the presence of God, an overwhelming presence in the face of which nothing else could come into being or even entertain the illusion of an autonomous and separate existence from God, then there is room to say, excuse the pun, that because of this true void and vacuum in which the world subsequently exists, that God is really and literally absent and other than and from the world. That the divine remains untouched and unmanifest, resting safely on its side of the vacuum, and we stand here on the other side, fundamentally alienated and cut off from the realm of the real. This phenomenological experience that we feel of being a being, unaware of being as such, is, on Lurie's account, a direct product of Tzimtzum. And this literal reading of Tzimtzum, which we shall see challenged shortly, leads Luria's language to seem consistently more theistic when talking of the divine, stressing the discontinuity between God and world in that equation, in comparison to his predecessor Cardevero's more panentheistic and even at times pantheistic language. Having laid this initial groundwork, let's see how this concept of Tzimtzum becomes a lot more nuanced at the hands of Luria's disciples, successors, and inheritors. The aforementioned theistic overtones engendered by a literal reading of Tzimtzum are mitigated by two factors within the reading of the Tzimtzum narrative itself. We'll explore both of these factors in due course, but allow me just to give you the chapter headings in advance. The first is what becomes known as Tzimtzum Lav Kepshuto, the non-literal reading of Tzimtzum which, as far as we can tell, was first articulated by a little-known but fascinating 16th-century Kabbalist, Avraham Cohen de Herrera, 
one of my favorite Kabbalists, by the way, but I'll explain why another time, a potential student of Yisrael Sarug, who may have been a student of the one and only Isaac Luria. A non-literal reading of Tzimtzum would mean that the divine contraction which caused the void, the Makom Chalal, the space for creation, for otherness, only happens for and from the perspective of creation, of the hypothetical other. But, from God's point of view, according to this non-literal reading, there never really was an absence. God was always fully there, even in the void, present and self-aware. That, in brief, is Tzimtzum Love Kapshuto, the non-literal reading of Tzimtzum. The implications for a pantheistic theology should be obvious. If the divine was never really absent, even from the place of absence, where for us God must be absent, then the divine is still here, always was and always will be, even in the world and in a substantial way. The second factor undermining a strict theism of a literal reading of Tzimtzum is the idea of Rishimu. Literally translated as residue, Rishimu refers to the residual light or divine self-consciousness left behind in the void created by the Tzimtzum. Like a forgotten melody lingering in the back of one's mind in which one is only conscious of knowing that one does not know it. Even on a literal reading of the Tzimtzum doctrine, the space made empty by God is not entirely empty. The metaphor given is like when one opens a cork and fully empties the content of a bottle of perfume, there is still some residual scent, traces of what was before left in the glass bottle. Rishimu is the trace left behind after the divine self-evacuates, self-excavates the halal, the void, the void which after all is not entirely void. And because it's not entirely void, again the door is left open for a panentheistic presence of the divine in the vacated world. While the terminology of Rishimu is found in earlier Kabbalistic works such as the Zohar and in those of Cordovero, the first to explicitly connect it to the concept of Tzimtzum seems to have been the 17th century Kabbalist and poet Moshe Zuccato, a student of a student of a student of the one and only Isaac Luria. And subsequently, this connection between Rishimu and Tzimtzum was developed and expanded by Naftali Bachrach in his influential and controversial Kabbalistic work, Eimek HaMelech. Luria's more theistic language continues on in some of his main students. However, in his most prominent student, Chaim Vital, the man responsible for transcribing and expounding most of his teacher's words, which you might imagine complicates matters a little, we see language closer to that of Cordovero's seeping in, particularly when it comes to the exposition of the Kabbalistic idea that every higher principle encloses itself in a lower one, an idea which, when taken to its extreme, spells out a pretty clear position of pantheistic divine immanence. As Vital writes in his Sharhak Damot, that one must understand how all worlds are nothing but garments of the divine, with the divine light both enclothing itself within them and filling them, or Mamale, as we spoke about last time, and perfectly surrounding them, or Sovev, with nothing beyond or outside of it. Vital writes how all of existence can be properly seen as mere garments of the divine, and as such are intimately bound with the emanator, although, quote, caution decrees that it would be inadvisable to reveal more in this matter. Another important Kabbalistic concept to take note of in this context is the concept of the curtain or screen called either the Masach or Parsa, typically situated between the states of being or consciousness of Atsilas and Bria along the great chain of being. If those terms mean nothing to you, don't worry. 
Isn't this fun, by the way? We're getting to introduce so many new Kabbalistic concepts here. Sovev and Umale, Ur and Kaili, Seder Stalschlot and Simtsum, Matzil and Netzal. Isn't that exciting? Okay, so to explain this new idea of the curtain, the Masach, as we've been saying, the objective of the process of Seder Stalschlot, of this great chain of being, is to funnel the divine light, the divine life and consciousness, through a series of reductions until it's reduced enough to be manifest in the worlds without metaphorically blowing them up. I say worlds intentionally, by the way, because for the Kabbalists, there are four primary manifest hierarchical worlds, or states of consciousness, from the top down, Atsilos, Bria, Yitzira, and Asiya. For the Kabbalist, the alchemist of the Hebrew language, the Hebrew word for world, Olam, shares the same meaning as the Hebrew word for concealment, He'elem. The world, via the process of Seder Ishtashlot, is where God is concealed and is the agent, the instrument of said concealment. The four worlds metaphorically can be thought of as four progressively filtered states of consciousness or awareness of the divine, and one can, through their spiritual work, ascend through those states and stages towards the divine, towards pure unity. But much like some contemporary theories of consciousness, if all of perception were made aware to us instantaneously, we would not be able to handle the stimuli. And in the rare chance our brains don't just go pop from the experience, we would certainly, at the very least, not be able to function and survive with that degree of input in our daily lives. Our worlds, therefore, our concealments, our minds, function as reduction valves to hold back the sheer immensity of being in the present moment and allow a space for a functioning world, a world of action, olam ha as the Kabbalists call it, allowing beings such as us to be present without becoming ontologically overwhelmed by being itself. In this way, the world concept for the Kabbalists functions as both manifestation and concealment. By holding back the full intensity of the divine, it affords the opportunity for her very presence. What happens, by the way, according to some modern theorists, when an individual has a mystical or psychedelic experience, is precisely that metaphorical valve which is ordinarily open just enough to allow a steady drip of consciousness, adjusted perfectly for survival, loosens up and releases the floodgates of awareness, a torrent, a tidal wave of the raw, unfiltered light of being which has the capacity to just totally shatter the individual's mundane awareness and tiny, illusory sense of being, and bathes them in the pure, radiant oneness of being itself. But for this experience to not be constantly happening, although God knows the world could do with a little bit more of it, the Kabbalists teach that at pivotal points along the great chain of being, the divine censors and self-restricts itself by metaphorically placing curtains to hold back, restrict and retain the blinding divine light from passing through, each one filtering out a different wavelength of the divine, so to speak. I'm using here metaphorical language for something which cannot be language, so excuse me. The question of what precisely of the divine is held back and filtered out by these curtains, and what is let through, is most relevant to our question of pantheism in Kabbalah. If what can be properly called God, i.e. the emanator, is held back by the curtain, and all that passes through is the emanated, then we're left with pretty much a theistic cosmology. But conversely, if something of the emanator persists and passes through, it leaves open the possibility for a pan or panentheistic universe. The psychological implications at this point, I hope, should be painfully obvious and not need to be repeated. 
among Luria's students, one by the name of Joseph ibn Tabul, thought that what was filtered out by the curtains was precisely what he calls God's inner light, the Or HaPnimi. However, God's surrounding and encompassing light, the Or HaMakif, according to Ibn Tabul, does pass through the curtains. Now, the question as to whether the divine substance is present in the surrounding light, in the Or HaMakif, is somewhat of an open question, but for those that feel that the answer is yes, and it seems like Ibn Tabul was one such person, the door for a more Cordovarian panentheistic universe is once again left wide open. Which means that despite the restrictions placed by the codons of consciousness, God or infinite presence in being, thanks to the surrounding light which passes through the codons, or around the codons, is present right here and right now. If we can end with one last thought on pan and panentheistic tendencies in Kabbalistic thought and literature, speaking in the broadest strokes, it seems that when Kabbalistic texts were being written with a broader audience in mind, such as Chaim Vital Shari Kedusha, they tend to downplay the pantheistic elements of their systems and accentuate their more theistic sides which would have been more acceptable to the masses. But beneath the theistic facade lies the secret doctrines which when prodded and pushed give way to a far more pan or panentheistic vision. These gems, to quote Shalom, such as the Lurianic doctrine of the creative light, the Kav, which we didn't get to, the residue, the Rishimu in the primordial space of the Tzimtzum, the unity of the chain of being, and so forth, nourished pantheistic tendencies which were introduced to the fore once more in a number of classic Hasidic texts. We really covered a tremendous amount in this class. I hope it wasn't too much for one sitting. We spoke about the meaning of Seder Hishtalshalot, of the Great Chain of Being, what problem, what metaphysical problem it comes to try and resolve, its implications for our own states of consciousness and psychology. We spoke about the doctrine of the Tzimtzum of Luria and the space that it creates and the space of play around it. Amongst his students, those reading it literally and non-literally, we ended off by speaking about the Masach and the Ur Sovev, God's surrounding light, which may pass through it, and its implications for cosmology and the implicit implications for psychology as well. I hope that wasn't too much theology for one sitting, but if you have any questions, comments, feedback, or appreciation, make sure to pop down into the comments. We love hearing back from you here. In next class, if we continue, we hope to get into the doctrines of pantheological thought amongst the Hasidic thinkers as that quote we just ended. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for watching. Thank you once again to our patrons who generously support this project over here, and as always, keep seeking.